we may be witness to a biblical prophecy come true, and there shall be destruction and darkness come upon creation, and the beasts shall reign over the earth. Welcome to the start of the nuclear age. This is Kaiju versus History's review of them. My name is Patrick, and my co-host with me, as always, is Miles. And this week's episode, we are indeed digging into 1954's T-H-E-M, Them, a gem of American monster movie cinema that probably gets overlooked because the same year that this came out, just a few short months later, we have another large, big, green, radioactive baddie that makes his way on the scene. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because when we had planned to do this movie, I remember you watched it much earlier than I did. And you kept telling me how how surprised you were that you had as good a time as you did. And I do think because the kaiju genre as a whole um, mostly gets as as it should be, uh, the, the attention gets paid to Japan. As a result, I think a lot of American science fiction movies from this period do sometimes get overlooked by genre fans because they they do have a certain, um, I don't want to say stigma about them, but there is a cheesiness that sometimes people don't seem to invite into their home. And I don't understand why specifically. Well, I think the scenes that still ex- like pervade in popular culture specifically about uh, very specifically, American radioactive monster, giant monster movies is cheesy kind of monster effects. You know, the woman screaming, blood curdling scream. Oh, yeah. People running away in terror. You know, the things that are in the, the trailers um, that do kind of get reused. And you'll see them in later movies, especially I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia in 80s films for the 50s, you'll see these horror movies like playing on TVs in mm-hmm. 80s horror films, especially. And you um, even see some of those movies remade, like The Thing or The Blob. Yeah, some remade. And then just so many of them um, just kind of lost to, to time. You know, there's a lot of films from the 50s that are perennial classics that will be replayed over and over again. I just, I think them is kind of, you know, lost, lost back then, um, it, lost it, in it the is, shuffle. I, I think part of it is, I think there is a, and I'm not saying it's an incorrect stereotype, but a lot of the American sci-fi monster movies, especially atomic monster movies, tended to often be sort of a copy of a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm. And so at, at, because you had a proliferation of these movies, it wasn't just them. And then, you know, Tarantula, it was a thousand movies just like it. And so unlike I feel like the the kaiju genre where there, there seemed to have been a lot more love involved in many of the films, not all, but many. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this was cash grabbing. And so it's interesting to see the movies that weren't movies like, and I'm talking about just the America, American atomic 
the science fiction age anyway. So you've got them or Earth yeah. versus the Flying Saucers, This Island Earth. You've got a lot of cool uh, or um, what's the one that they remade? Um, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're gonna be digging into some of <laughs> the the 1950s American monster movies in the the coming months, and this is definitely, I, I would say, this is to American monster movies what Godzilla is to uh, a lot of the Japanese films that would come in the the earlier 60s as well. You know, a lot they're just throwing everything against the wall. They're seeing what sticks. Um, for better or for worse, I do agree with you, but I think it's for very different reasons that these films are popular. Yeah, yeah. This film, though, I, I, I will say feels very spiritually, in my mind, after watching it, connected to Godzilla because they're both so straight-laced. They're taken so seriously. Uh, the quote from this episode's uh, intro is from one of the scientist characters in the film, Dr. Harold Medford, and just shows how dark <laughs> this movie gets at time. This this biblical kind of prophecy of human humanity being destroyed by beasts, by monsters. Um, and it's a threat that kind of gets realized as the, the plot of this film progresses and it's all because of atomic bomb testing and they, they have, you know, quotes at the end of the movie, like the, the, everything that happens in this film comes from one atomic bomb uh, testing sites. And there's dozens by this point in 1954. Um, so it's, it, it feels very similar to Dr. Yamane's re- spoilers next week's um, kind of refrain at the end of 1954's Godzilla. Well, what, before what, we get into I think some of the background behind this movie, oh. Patrick, I, I want, I want you to do what you love to do best and, and explain to everybody what's in a title. Well, it's, it's so funny. This film did get some international releases, including in Sweden, where they changed the title to spend Larna, uh, which directly translates to the spiders, which it's like, do they not have ants in Sweden? <laughs> that sounds like which a, which is a bummer because spin Lorna sounds like an awesome movie title. I think one of the reasons this movie is passed over a lot is the title is generic. The title is not extremely evocative about, I mean, it's, the fact that it's giant ants, you know, here, but, here, but here's, here's the thing. I mean, is, it's great. I love it. Like, especially it, in like all capital letters. The beginning of this movie is in color for some reason. Um, well, they, so uh, they wanted to like really drive home that, uh, <laughs> that well, title. The, the reasoning for that was because initially they were going to do it in 3d and, and color and, and color at both. Aspects. Yes. So they just left so the good. title card in, in color in bright red. And the rest of the movie is black and white. Honestly, it's a flourish that I, I genuinely appreciate. I thought that was, it, it gave me a good chuckle. Uh, th- this movie has, uh, in popular culture, persisted. Uh, Van Morrison had a band called Them, uh, which he says from from the film. There's plenty of parodies of of TV shows and movies uh, that would show a similar kind of monster movie or or something similar, evoking. 1950s radioactive giant monster movies from America, and it would be like those or these. <laughs> those I, kind I of feel films. like I feel like if if this film hadn't uh, played such a part in or spawned such a subgenre that took on a life of its own, I think it because the title is 
it's good in the context of the movie and especially where the, the movie gets its title from but everything else about the movie because it became this this template for what would become stereotypes unlike you know Lugosi's Dracula which also became the template for stereotypes Dracula still evokes a lot of mm-hmm. feelings of classicism where them is it just kind of feels a little flat <laughs> yeah I, I, I mean I personally don't have a better title for this film um I mean I'm glad they didn't uh call it ants animation point <laughs> yeah because that sounds like a musical <laughs> we'd get a animated film uh later on called ants with a z, z. <laughs> but uh yeah i mean maybe that maybe that's why i uh, yeah i mean that there's and that that's one of the main problems with the film is it's kind of n- not tied to any particular singular creature you know one of our kind of uh, rules for for what is a kaiju movie we want to focus in on a singular creature this is about a a hive this is about a a group of of monsters a colony ant colony and the threat of them spreading out across the face of the earth which is a great analogy for the nuclear arms race itself and mm-hmm. in particular you know the unforeseen consequences of it but yeah, uh, you can't summarize all that in a title. <laughs> no, and I mean, I I, I, I get it. So th- this film comes a year after the great success for Warner Brothers with the blockbuster release of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And as such, WB made 2,000 prints of the film for wide release, which yeah. is at the time insane. This yeah. is where we start, like as Patrick said last week, we're starting to get into the blockbuster era. And Records are a little sketchy, but the box office number either puts this as the studio's top earner for 1954 or one of the top three with projections of about $2 million in ticket sales for the first year. Yeah, which is it's um, comparable to Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I think it's it's less ticket sales, um, but about as much money as uh, 1956's. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, another huge monster movie. Um, but this one definitely, definitely very popular. And I would say along with Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, both of those are kind of responsible for the craze we're going to get in the next five to six years, especially in the United States. The 50s has got a lot of end of the world kind of science fiction films, but um a lot with giant monsters and then it kind of dies out. Um, unfortunately doesn't continue into the sixties as, as much as we will see, but this is, like I said, for me personally, uh, a, a great spiritual connection to um, 1954's Godzilla. And the fact that these were both being made at the same time and they share so much DNA is one of the things that I enjoy about looking at these Kaiju movies up close is, you know, being able to compare and contrast people making similar movies across the planet. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those situations where there's just something in the air because Godzilla yeah. came out about, I think six months after this. And, what? and I they, don't, they both I, I don't have such similar themes on it's, nuclear arms. There, you see this in genre fiction all the time where there's just something in the air. There, there's a period yeah. of the eighties where a lot of aquatic horror comes out in about 1989 where you mm-hmm. have Leviathan and uh, Deep Star Six, I think it's the same year as well, and then <laughs> The Abyss. And 
it's just sometimes I know I know for one of those movies they just want to beat James Cameron. Oh yeah. There, there is Roger Corman. <laughs> yes, saw dollar signs. But I, I do think but there th- is that's to be not said the case for... here for yes. sure. I mean, Godzilla was inspired by Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. We will talk about that in the future. But there's some of the Toho executives might have seen that movie, but it was not released in Japan until a year or until after Godzilla. You know, right? So, God, Godzilla came out six months later. It had a fifty-one day shoot. There was just no way yeah. that this movie had an effect on Godzilla at this time. (laughs) I mean, it is interesting. There are, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, the Japanese studios, Toho in particular, would do kind of exchange programs where they would send people to Hollywood to, to learn techniques and bring them back to Japan and kind of spread them out. But I mean, story-wise, obviously this, these are completely different films. Um, Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're so, they're so closely tied together in, in time that, Yes, it, it was some of the tropes that it does seem to establish. You know, some people could say, "Oh, well, it got there first, But I think both <laughs> these movies came out the same year. It's it's yeah. it's hard to to say one way or the other. But but it's, I, I it's do think this is a fascinating movie to look at. Yeah, I do think it's an interesting movie to look at, and um, it was one that I hadn't seen before. I, I, I knew I, of it for sure, but I feel I, like I it's one of the ones before. that just has like soaked in with some of the other giant monster American movies into my subconscious that I've seen like maybe bits and pieces of here and there, but for some reason I've not sat down. And it's one of the things that I wanted to do this podcast for is if there are other gems like them out there, I will be happy to, to watch them for the first time. And there are definitely worse ways to spend a Saturday afternoon. Spoiler warning for our rating at the end of the episode, but it's not a bad movie. It's a good movie. (laughs) Uh, Not great perhaps, but it does a lot of things right. And let, let's get to talking about them. Let's talk about the let's talk about the crew uh, cast and, and everyone else involved with this movie. We have a very similar to Godzilla as well, a trio of, of characters and plus an older doctor character. But uh, the first character we meet is Sergeant Ben Peterson, played by James Whitmore who had a huge career of like 50 years, massive career, but I knew him as his role as Brooks in 1954's um, the, the, the Frank Darabont classic, the Shawshank redemption. Um, so he's so good. So he's good so in good. that he's great in this movie. He's wonderful in this movie. I thought he was going to be I don't know, a rigid 1950s actor, but you get a lot out of him. The, uh, the, the role of the doctor, you know, your Dr. Yamani type character is played by uh, Edmund Gwynn. Um, whose cousin <laughs> was the doctor character. Uh, his cousin Cecil Kellaway played the same kind of doctor role, the paleontologist from the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms the year before. And I didn't recognize him, but he also played <laughs> Chris Kringle in A Miracle on 34th Street. Um, had a hard time making this film. Apparently, he was like crippled by arthritis. Uh, I don't know if, how much it's, it, it seems like a lot of people didn't have the best time on the set. I mean, 110 degree shooting conditions out there in the uh, Southwest deserts, <laughs> whenever they were shooting outside, it sounded like torture, but this, this film is, is not for, for nothing because, you know, CBS looked at and found James Arness and after this film went on to star in Gunsmoke for yeah. what would be a 20 year career and but he had 
635 episodes of. James Arness, not my favorite in this movie, but yeah, no. they, they headhunted him. And I mean, it's not his last movie, but he's primarily known for, for Gunsmoke, obviously. Um, he's he's good. He plays an FBI agent in, in the film. Um, whose name escapes me? Robert Graham. Uh, FBI agent Robert Graham. And rounding out the cast, we've got Joan Weldon as Dr. Pat Medford, um, the the daughter of um, Edmund Gwynn's character. Yeah, and she certainly didn't think much of them. <laughs> yeah, well, she's she's another actress that had you know many credits under her her belt. I think going into this one, um, it, it's always funny hearing the stories of these actors. You know, imagine getting this this script in particular and being like giant ants, really. <laughs> Director. Uh, Gordon Douglas is probably the craziest of the, the cast and crew story here. He started in like the twenties uh, making, making films and started out both acting and directing little rascal shorts. You know, he was an adult for the our um, gang uh, shorts. And then he filmed for RKO. He did Dick Tracy film made Robin hood films with Columbia pictures uh, this is obviously a Warner Brother production, and then later on he would work for 20th Century Fox. Um, yeah, he has such a wild like his last film is an evil Knievel movie in the 80s, uh, 1977, okay. starring evil Knievel as himself, but also it had like Gene Kelly and Lauren Hutton, and yeah. like it's that's it's wild that this this career has, has gone on such a just a winding path. They call me Mr. Tibbs, director of that film. And this them <laughs> is only one of 28 movies he made in the, the decade of the 50s from, you know, uh, 51 to 1960. Like he was he's prolific mm-hmm. <laughs> as, a, as a director. Um, uh, D- uh, Joan Weldon, you know, we, we didn't talk too much about her. Uh, she's great. She's what I think I I mean, there's so much of this movie. I wish would have been in the beast from 20,000 fathoms to elevate the monster in that movie. Yes. Um, where that films, I think human cast suffers because of, you know, script choices, dialogue it's, choices it's all over the place acting. This movie really excels. And, and yeah, um, Joel Weldon as, as Pat Medford is great. Reminiscing on the movie. I have a quote here. Uh, after she read the script, she said, uh, I just knew my character was a scientist and I was hoping that somewhere along the line, they would maybe add in a romance uh, plot, you know, and I felt like it was going that way earlier it, in the they film. Absolutely hint at it. They like they, you know, talk about, oh, man, she's a looker, yada, yada. <laughs> Early in the movie, uh, the director didn't want any kind of romance in the film whatsoever, she said. Uh, it was totally devoid of any interplay with anybody. The ants were supposed to be the star. And I I mean, I think it's it's probably very good that they didn't just shoehorn in a romance. And, you know, for what it's worth, some people ding the original Godzilla for, for a, a romance triangle subplot even though i mean it, it's definitely not super center yeah stage. it's it's not it's especially not what the 
sci-fi genre becomes where you have a shoehorned in romance in almost every science fiction thing. Well, yeah, you think it's going to happen because you've got two leading men, you know, potentially vying for her for her affection, but it just as soon as they introduce at the 28 minute mark the the ants it's a completely different movie you know <laughs> well and, and my attitude is i mean if you're making a a monster movie and the monster isn't at least the monster should be the star or at least the co-star and if it's not then you know you're making something else with a monster in it yes and that's another one of our you know rules for like what is a kaiju movie and they got to be the main star of the show right or they should be something uh i mean there should be a, kind of a form of uh 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 del test you know where the the people should be talking about the monsters you know the thing that's <laughs> threatening to destroy the world and not you know their their their, their love. feelings for each other yeah they shouldn't be I having mean, so, having jokes these... over the radio with their father yeah. about <laughs> you know you I have mean... to say over over <laughs> Uh, I yeah I yeah there's scenes that try to interject some some humor with the 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 bumbling professor Medford that scene drove me up the wall (laughs) um yeah but I mean the answer is supposed to be the star great quote from from Joan Weldon who passed away only this year 2021 Mm. uh, earlier in February she when the Hollywood studio system collapsed, you know, she was like a Warner brothers character player. Uh, she left Hollywood and went back to stage. She was an, uh, one of the world's youngest contracted opera singers. So she had a very successful career after this, but yeah, is, you know, in her obituaries, like she was hounded by giant ants in them. That's one of like the main things, uh, she she's known for in, in Hollywood. Um, so let's uh let's hop into this flick. <laughs> you mentioned that uh they were all in Warner Brothers after they made so much money off of the relatively cheaply produced Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So they got this brand new camera, uh, a new, I think um I'm not sure if it was a, a new aspect ratio or, or format that they were hoping for, but they're trying to change things up in the shooting of this film, including going to color and 3d. And as soon as they started filming, I think like a day or so in a production, the camera broke <laughs> and uh, they had to restart. And I think because of that, they were like, whatever, it's black and white now, <laughs> you know, go ahead and, and do what you need to do. But I think that was, just the beginning of some of the troubles for the the production of the movie. I I think I, I you can tell, and, and there there are parts of this movie that feel like the the script maybe had gone through some changes on set. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't see if there was any actual problems with the ants themselves in terms of the the special effects. Yeah, so they did have three full ants. We'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah, I'm not sure just how much they were hoping to get from them. They, When they're shown, sadly, and this is one of the, the main problems with the film, they're not moving typically. You know, they're like stationary ants. Um, every once in a while, they will have, I think, it on a dolly or something, kind of like move towards an actor the end of the the movie in particular yeah, 
there's a couple moments where they they do something pretty well, mostly at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And I feel like from then on, it just feels like the ants are extremely stiff. Um, but so I, I really love uh, to, to kick off our conversation uh, about them. I love the beginning of this film very, very much. I think oh, yeah. the way it plays as an eerie sci-fi movie with a with with a tinge of horror, I, I think is is so well done. It's got a very reserved score. It's got it relies on these the, the the actual sounds the ant makes, and then it like fades away into the quiet, and then the actual set is quiet, and it adds a an unnerving eeriness to it that plays very very well at the beginning of this film. I I, I it's very reminiscent of of horror films specifically mm-hmm. that will come later, but I I do have to give it props for that because I was extremely impressed with how this film opened. It's very very stark. I will say, I, I think this movie does not suffer at all from being in black and white because the some of the settings, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you've got just desert. And it's like, I mean, w- do we need to see like 12 shades of yellow and, and orange? And, and no, I, I actually storm. think this film is elevated because it's in black and white. The end is in the L.A. sewer system, which is all gray. <laughs> you know, there's 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 no need for color there, really. And um yeah, yeah, it, it, it's one that, I mean, there's not huge explosions, really. There's some fire. But besides that, I, I, I think that it doesn't it, nothing's taken away from me as far as that's concerned, technically. Um, Even narratively, this opens up very differently than a lot of, of movies that it would come to inspire. Like because this movie opens up with these two cops finding this little girl wandering the desert by herself. Mm-hmm. And she's in a completely catonic, shocked state. And as they try to unfold what's going on, it's it's such an interesting sequence of events. In in the in the actual investigation is interesting because you get close to seeing the ants, and you've seen the poster. You know you're supposed to see some ants, but <laughs> yeah. But the way they do it, the way they build up to something happening, is is honestly exceptional the, the first act of this film is top notch and well i i think i come off maybe not as excited about patrick about this movie i have to say they open this film to where you know they discover the little girl and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they bring in some experts and, and trying to investigate what's happening to these people in this relatively remote part of uh new mexico i think mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah i i I think this movie is great. I think it is probably one of my top five favorite American sci-fi films. Now I didn't realize it was such a classic um, that I was missing out on. There's definitely two or three things holding this movie back heavily holding it back from being, I mean, just one of the greatest sci-fi films uh, of all time, but the subject matter is handled so seriously. I really thought that it would, kind of dive into campness or, you know, get, get a little silly, but the threat that they are dealing with here of these radioactive ants ravaging the countryside, like you said, in the beginning of this movie, we see their destruction. We see off, uh, off screen, them murdering people. Um, It, yeah. It, in the same way that Godzilla gets Japan, we've got this kind of elevated threat of giant bugs and, well, they do such a good job with a simple connect the dots plot because, yeah. you know, they have 
the investigation. Then we get to see the ants. They destroy most of the ants except for two queens. And from the the, the basically the end of the first act to the rest of the movie is they're searching for these queens so they can you know, keep them from spreading and possibly, you know, <laughs> destroying the United States. I think it's a, they do a good job setting up the the basic skeleton of this film. I think for me, that middle section is both a part I love, but also a part that I think is an exceptional slog in this movie. Yeah, I would say the same thing about um, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. That is one part where it drags. Um, I would say the the beginning of the movie, I mean, just all the stuff with the little girl and with, you know, oh, uh, Ben's partner getting killed and, and all that. It's uh, it, it really does drive up the tension. But the the yeah, like the second act of the film is like a detective story almost. Which it's so here, here's the thing. Our first how you, act. How you losing giant ants? Just look around. <laughs> Oh, the, 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 yeah, that that being the the big <laughs> the big issue. Yes. Um, so here's here here's the thing, and I don't think anyone would ever want to do this, but in in an ultra Q type of fashion, mm-hmm. the first act as a pilot film for a TV show that basically sets up an X Files type of thing. We see this cool board about oh, yeah kidnappings and unsolved murders and uh strange phenomena of flying saucers have some all- sugar <laughs> threats of sugar for some reason um yeah well and- the the ants eat sugar <laughs> i know i know that but like- <laughs> i know but that's like a, such a weird thing i love the the fact that all these the the board uh all the military personnel working there have no idea what's going on it's like yeah. still a state secret but like it makes for this cool like supernatural style show oh it's so good that you could lead up to yes then they finally find the ants now for me and this is this will be one of the things i talk about a little bit i don't find ants that interesting i'm not yeah. a massive bug person and so, so like I, I personally think one of the things that is missing from this film and it's budgetary thing, I'm sure, is the queens don't look. I mean, they they <laughs> they glue on some wings, um, but the queens don't look different from the the first ant that we see because yeah. The same when, when I saw that, I just went cool. If they had a giant larval queen, uh, you know, model or or whatever at the end of the movie or. Or something along those lines. Um, yeah, then you get the alien, for, the ending from Aliens. And yeah, yeah, it would have been much better. <laughs> um, the, the scene that you're talking about with the the huge board, uh, I I just love that so much. When I was watching it, I took a picture of it with my phone. I was like, oh, I want to read this list. But. I I wanted to see like those adventures, like because you know mm-hmm. some but some of those guys, some of those agents may have well, had some wild and wacky adventures that had <laughs> nothing to do with semantics. We we get you know a detective scene where the two main male leads are going around tracking down these clues, and they've got like you know stories of these bums that were picked up and for drunken disorderly, and one of them said they saw a flying saucer, and and it's very interesting. That actor, by the way, um, was picked up because of his seen the uh the, the drunkard in the hospital i think they originally come to look at um uh, james whitmore for the role but i think they ended up going with the alcoholic patient uh was it olin howland for a disney role what was that i was just, I was just reading I, I think he got picked up 
for like Davy Crockett or something. It's another, he, another, he did. another place where they were using this film to just kind of like cast other movies and TV shows afterwards. But I mean, there's some good scenes in there. There's some bad. Um, but one thing, um, oh, b- before we, we move on, one thing about that board scene, um, we get a, a cameo from a young Leonard Nimoy as a military staff member, another <laughs> blink and you miss it kind of thing. But uh, Look at, looking great, looking I, great. I was so focused on the board. I did not notice on my initial. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's a it's a great photo. Um, Patrick attached this to, uh, to our notes. It's a, honestly a fantastic photo. And again, like I was very much wanting a spinoff thing of all these agents having these wild and crazy adventures and no one caring because giant ants are on the loose, whether it was flying saucers or, Mm -hmm. you know, other actual monsters. Um, So, I mean, we'll talk about the legacy of this film, but man, I wish there was a remake or a sequel or a TV show. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, think a TV show would have been neat, especially if you had a couple episodes where it's like, oh, we're looking into these other things and have these kind of X-Files type adventures. Um, or just one of my radiation causing all, all kinds of problems. You know, someone is turned invisible by radiation. Hey, I mean, or <laughs> heck, they made a decade of Smallville out of it. So I think <laughs> you can do all right. <laughs> yeah, what was I going to mention? Um I, I do find that the climax of this film seems to meander a lot. Mm, yeah. And oh, yeah, we've, we've got some, some interesting bits there posed at the end where they're hunting for the last queen. And one of the leads that they have to go on is uh, a missing persons report of this father and his kids who just disappeared. And they find the truck down by, the the LA River and that kind of leads to the the actual climax, but it it really kind of brings a, a human element to to the, the the giant monster movie. It's like they're not they don't just care like about gassing these tunnels because they I mean there's little kids potentially in danger. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know the the the, the, the climax of this movie. Yeah, just it 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 didn't do a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see some of these ideas being done, you know, at this time, especially like you said, the, um, the, the kidnapped kids and this is what they're going through there. I, I it's setting up the, the logical, Oh, why aren't they just gassing the entire sewer system? Yeah. It's, it's, it's nice. Um, I also, I like that the giant ants don't really pop up until about 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it's done so, in so many other monster movies uh, from here on out, like you never show it in the first act of the film. Um, I, I personally found so many influences for later films and watching this one. One of the reasons I really enjoyed it. Um, there are shades of uh, 1979's uh, classic Ridley Scott film alien with them descending into the ants nest um, in, in the second act where the three main characters go down there with flamethrowers. They have those were actual World War II flamethrower operators and the their weapons from uh, the Second World War that were were used. I, I love that they weren't props. They were just giant flamethrowers. Um, you know, that felt very much like that scene with all the eggs in uh, in Alien. And then you've got this little girl that's scared mute by the creatures that makes me think of 1986 is aliens with newt see i definitely see a lot of 
hints of aliens i i would mm-hmm. absolutely think that james Cam- I, I know for a fact james cameron's seen this movie um, yeah yeah i mean i mean great uh directors i think steal you know some of the best stuff uh and, from, yeah, from great movies like this but i also think that he maybe had the same ideas that we did that hey that queen scene's a big letdown let's redo it that's why i i don't even know if i need mm-hmm. a remake of them because james cameron gave it to me yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I really wish we saw a huge, creepy queen at the end, like getting ready to um, make some more queens, more some more babies, but we don't. Um, it reminds me a lot in, you know, kind of hearing and seeing the effects of the monster, but not seeing them until, until that second act, you know, like Jaws and the movie Tremors, especially with the desert setting. Reminded me a lot of Tremors. Some of the destruction yeah. that they so, visit in, in the desert, especially. You, you mentioned that. I'm just going to uh, have this conversation on air. Uh, I, I We haven't put that on the uh, our, our master list yet. I, <laughs> I, I feel like there's an argument for Tremors being on there. Yeah, well, the, the fact that yeah, this <laughs> does a lot of things that Tremors does later on is it does kind of fun. Very well. I have a soft spot. Maybe not all watching all like what eight of those movies, but the first <laughs> Tremors and even the second, but the first Tremors is a really, really solid movie. Well, you know, and, one of the things that uh, another movie that this inspired later on, we're not talking about the legacy yet, but in the film Eight Legged Freaks, uh, there is a scene from them playing on like a, a TV screen in in the movie, which you know, obviously a, a very large connection um, between those those scenes. Uh, do you have a favorite scene in the movie before we we wrap up here? I mean, that that entire first act is really great, but I love those first opening investigation scenes where like yeah. they go into the store and the score starts to quiet down a little bit. And if there's just an eeriness about it because they can't figure out why everything's in disarray, the, the money's still there. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, it's so well executed. They and smell something. They don't know what it is. The, the, the execution of tension, especially for that time is just masterfully done in those first couple of investigation scenes. And, and and honestly, why I, I view this movie as positively as I do is because of that first act and those scenes in particular, because they are top notch. Yeah, the first act is fairly uh, slow, but you're never bored, which for me, I mean, that's big praise for any 1950s black and white film. I, I mean, I feel like this is is rocking along the entire time. I, I really I was shocked personally. And one of my favorite scenes is the end where you see. Um, Graham, uh, you know, uh, Ben, the state police officer going through the sewer system and, and rescuing the kids. Then he, I mean, if they could have shown it, they would have, but in the remake of this movie, he gets like cut in half by an ant, you know, it shows them like pinching him at midsection and he dies. It's, and it's a twist. I did not see happening in this movie, you know, probably the reason why there was not a love interest but it it just it takes it beyond what in my mind is 1950s camp makes it a little more serious with a a death right there at the end of the movie and yeah just one of the things i think that works so well in many kaiju movies and not, not all of them they don't all have to be serious but this movie takes itself very seriously very similar to 1954's godzilla almost documentary style in following these characters trying to deal with this threat. I, I, I mean, I think it's great. <laughs> uh, 
we've touched on some of the things, but what in particular didn't work for you in the, in the movie? I, I I kind of, I mean, the ant's initial appearance is cool. Mm -hmm. As the movie goes on, it seems like that's all they have for them. And while I think the actual special effect of the ants look good in general, in terms of the ants look very well done, they look realistic in comparison with the actors. Yeah. They don't do a whole lot. They're not super exciting to watch. And I understand this is 1954. They don't have a lot they can do with these giant creatures. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I feel like that. And honestly, the absence of character. I think everyone plays a role. I don't think there's any real characters in this movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they do a great job with the script they're given. But uh, yeah, I have the actors did a good job. A hundred percent. I, I, for me, I felt that the attempts at humor didn't really work for me. And that middle, it, that middle part, which <laughs> there are so many parts that about that whole second act that I think is conceptually interesting. And for whatever reason, I found myself tuning out a lot. And well, that's a bummer because <laughs> conceptually, I love the idea of what's happening. It's got one of the most uh, classic tropes of all of kaiju cinema which is the scientists finally bringing it to like the military board and this movie is one of the first to show stock footage of little tiny ants you know and being like this is them on a small scale imagine them 50 times bigger and radioactive uh we'll see that uh, that same scene played out many times in, in movies from here on out but yeah, yeah, I, I think you you're correct, and I mean, fortunately, uh, what happens in a lot of these films is they are pre-stock characters. But yeah, that all all that being said, the actors are so serious about their their characters. It it, it somehow elevates uh, those performances. But I, I know I'm also speaking from a, a modern context, and it seemed, at least from the reviews that I've seen from fairly well-respected periodicals that the movie was pleasantly received when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, that's one of the things 60 some odd years later, uh, 67 years later that I'm surprised it doesn't hold more of a, a place in people's minds, especially if it was so popular, but I think it does get drowned out a bit by other more popular movies. And then also just a ton of imitators and kind of uh, well, sequel like remakes. Like I said at the top of the show, in con in concert with the countless imitators that it inspired, you also had some top tier science fiction movies released in this decade right. that tend to overshadow it, like the invasions of the body snatchers, you yeah. know, and like we said, the thing or the thing from another world. I mean, there 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 are movies that helped put a, a a bigger mark i don't want to say a better but a bigger mark on the science fiction genre as a whole that i can see why some people kind of overlook oh the giant bug movie and i think i despite how i feel about the movie i think it's a shame because i feel this movie does start something interesting i think it at least attempts to have a a serious movie about giant creatures and i think that's cool the fact that this movie takes itself seriously endears it to me in some respect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah like you mentioned i mean it's just in in our world of many a sequel and remake and reboot it is crazy that this one hasn't been touched 
you know, I don't know if it's been bandied about and they could, I mean, well, I don't know. We, we've got Ant-Man in the wasp well, and we've got the CGI of the ants in those movies, but, uh, we, and we also had like a couple of giant bug movies in the early to uh, mid aughts that, mm. you know, eight legged freaks and big ass spider and, and <laughs> stuff like that, where it's, I mean, probably for the best that this one is real allowed to remain a classic of the 50s it's not that i think you can't do this in a serious manner now Mm -hmm. i just i think the best way to approach a movie with a 50s american 50s atomic style is to do it slightly tongue-in-cheek um and, and and comment on other things and not just the nuclear aspect and I think they could do something interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd like, like it freaks tried, but uh, you know, it it's a fun movie. It's, yeah. it's not a great one, but it's a very fun movie. Um, but as, as far as the, the people at the time, I mean, variety called it a top notch science fiction shocker. It has a well plotted story expertly directed and acted in a matter of fact style to rate a chiller payoff and thoroughly satisfy the fans of hackle raising melodrama. Yeah. I so, mean, pretty high praise pretty pretty high praise and i mean they're not they're not far <laughs> off it is oh. crazy because i could see this movie also being panned for some of the reasons that we're dinging it you know so i i do love it that the, the new yorker was having fun but wanted to let you know that they were you know having fun <laughs> if you're willing to let your imagination off the leash off the leash you may have a fairly good time at them <laughs> like they can't bring themselves to say they liked it yeah exactly <laughs> I, um, I I feel like I mean we'll see this with 1954's Godzilla, but uh, I feel like critics at the time were were kind of similar uh, for that movie. It's like I can't believe it—a giant monster rampaging through. We'll get city. we'll get into that next week, but uh, I, I think there's a difference between critics at the time in Japan and critics mm-hmm. at the time everywhere else. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Um, the the fact that this was well received, um, you know, does make sense for for our enjoyment now if you're listening to this and and you haven't tried this movie out i mean there's you know all kinds of clips and things you can see online but i mean i was just i was affected by it i thought it was very enjoyable um are you ready this are you ready to get into rating (laughs) yeah so now comes a time when we are going to rate this movie both patrick and myself use a scale of one to ten to individually look at the personal enjoyment technical and aesthetic elements of the film, as well as the emotional and evocative responses that generate as a piece of art. Uh, when we combine these scores to get one number, and that will be our personal rating for the film. So Patrick, walk us through your rating for this movie. Let's, let's talk about your personal enjoyment. So it feels ahead of its time. Um, I do think it does flow well. I agree with that variety review. It's a well-designed script for the most part. And normally I would say a black and white film like this is it's difficult to keep me entertained, but I was, I mean, I was glued to to this movie. Uh, So for personal enjoyment, it's up there. It's up there. I would watch this probably sooner than I would go back and watch King Kong. So high praise for me, 10 out of 10 on that respect. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you know my final scores. Are so you're like, where, where else is this going? What 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 about you, Miles? <laughs> so here's what's interesting about this movie in comparison to Godzilla, and that for me, and this is where I'm coming with my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the perspective of the bomb. While 
atomic radiation does cause giant ants. For me, the overall tone of this movie, while somewhat severe in the first act as a sci-fi horror film, Mm -hmm. it seems to come from a wouldn't it be kooky if perspective rather than Mm. any sort of serious meditation on what the ramifications are for the atomic age. Yes, the professor at the end of the movie has that little stinger about the doors man opened at the end of the film. The doors for ripoffs and more <laughs> giant monster movies is opened. But but for me, it feels more like a line serving as an exclamation point ending a pulp serial than anything else. And while it's fascinating that this comes the same year as Godzilla, because I think this shows the explicit views likely stem from being on the side of the bomb it came from. Mm. And that's really fascinating to me. The United States dropped it. Whereas, and we'll talk about this next week, the Japanese lived it. And I think it it changed the landscape of of the history of a nation. While for the other, it wasn't. It certainly was a major factor in the war, but it didn't change how an entire group of people lived. And I think it's a large note in the history for the U.S., but... It's not the same. And Mm -hmm. these two stories, this and next week's Godzilla, reflect that entirely. And so for me, that's the the one thing I kept taking because I watched this on the same day as I watched, you know, next week's film. And and that severity I felt was lacking. And again, I don't love giant bugs. (laughs) So So giant monkeys, giant bugs, they're they're no ghosts for you. (laughs) Well, as a certain bugs, I like certain bugs, but so I gave it a seven. Um, Uh I I think this movie is, has an incredible first act in in terms of how it functions as a science fiction horror film. Um, I dislike that it doesn't try to say anything more about the atomic aspect of it. I will say, I mean, we'll talk about it next week. I'm going to say that like 18 more times this episode, but I I do like that the science, uh, the scientific characters, the scientists, are, are so kind of closely tied together mm-hmm. and, you know, warning about the, the ramifications and what, like we talked about with the beast from 20,000 fathoms at the time um, there was, you know, a lot of worry about the next atomic bomb and the next weapon of mass destruction from hydrogen to uh, uh, fusion bombs with a hundred times more grade. And I think Hollywood and, um, the Japanese studio system were, you know, keyed into to worries, uh, atomic age worries, and relating that for for the audience. Um, this movie, I'm sure, will <laughs> will do that better than some of the American sequels, where it does oh, get a little campier. A hundred percent. I mean, I I I appreciate they tried. It's just it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I can't talk this week that. <laughs> This film is is severe in certain parts, but it the atomic part seems so much like a a, a science fiction like magazine story, mm-hmm. and and not I guess because you know Godzilla comes out six months later from a com- country on which the bomb was dropped, and it's such a severe harrowing story, and I just find that that so interesting that both these movies came out the same year and look at an atomic monster in completely different lights. Yeah, it's both in different kind of forms of Pandora's box. Yeah. Um, uh, we have more rate to get to. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, the, sorry. I, I know I wanted a whole thing because I wanted to wait until the end before I brought this up because yeah. I was just 
it was such an interesting thing to me and it did factor into my personal enjoyment of this movie. And it's one of um, the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast chronologically um, to compare yeah. how things change. And as you're listening to this, you're going to realize people's opinion on atomic energy changes a great deal um, for the technical side of things. I've dinged this pretty heavily. This movie needed an upgrade. They needed to get their own Ray Harryhausen for this movie. Because coming off of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, this is a huge technical letdown. It deserved a lot better for the script and for the acting. I, I mean, it's crazy that the the supposed star of this movie was not given as much as it needed to kind of really shine. Uh, I get, Technically, I gave it a 6 out of 10. It does some interesting things, but it doesn't complete really its mission. So I'm I'm kind of with you. I gave it a hair higher because I was being kinder, mostly because I knew you really liked this movie. Um, <laughs> I, I gave it a seven, seven uh, I, yeah. which, which, which is a score that kind of changed as we talked about it. I did initially give it an eight, but the more I thought about it, uh-huh. the more I I really I thought the the attempted at the attempt at the creatures was decent, but it still didn't hit the mark. It didn't wow me like Harryhausen's Maya Joe Young robot. And honestly, this this came to mind because Harryhausen had this whole I don't know if there was ever that he felt any negativity towards Godzilla, but he had spoken in some interviews about thinking that the stop motion art was a higher form than a guy in a suit. I mean, and I think I think it, I think this, that's him spending like 18 hours in the studio. Projecting, right. You know, but I think I think this it. movie also is like, yeah, but maybe you need a guy in a suit to make this work. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's one of the th- reasons why the um, the technical aspects will, will change as they do over the decades. Um, seven out of 10 for you, six out of 10 for me from the emotional um, importance of this film to the greater genre. It has a lot of chops. This film has a lot of chops for me. I will say, I think now retrospectively watching this, I'm putting it kind of in the same category as King Kong and the beast from 20,000 fathoms, not a direct influence on Godzilla, but like I said, at the top of the show feels like a spiritual sibling. It's, it feels like both these directors tapped into something at the time and yeah this is the equivalent um uh, uh film to 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 godzilla um so for that reason um for for its kind of importance i'm giving it an eight out of ten for that so i i also gave it a 10 for very similar reasons i think this this movie is important for american science fiction in that it kicked off an entire decade of of movies you know whether or not that decade that followed was good or bad, it doesn't matter. This movie had a massive influence. It was a big hit. And it also, you know, without some of those movies, we wouldn't get some of the cool advancements and special effects and and specifically in independent filmmaking because a lot of these movies were, especially the the future ones, cheap cash-ins. And you had some directors and filmmakers who were honestly wanting to tell a good story. So they had Mm -hmm. to be creative in how they told it. And I think that that opened up to some excellent science fiction. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, yeah, I'm giving it an eight because it definitely had an impact. It's just, you know, I wish the movie it, was a little better. <laughs> it wasn't as big of a splash as what we're going to talk about next week. No, um, but with, so with that, said, my, my total is going to be a seven. 
it's it's a seven. Mine's an eight. Um, the the way we have it weighted, uh, combining our two scores together, including crazy repeating decimal places, is going to push it up to a, a total final score of eight. Boo! Just, just the way it, just the way it works, and I I ding this heavier on on the technical aspect, but I mean, just like I said, for no, my, my recommendation, I'm, I'm fine with it getting an eight. I, I don't I I don't look at it as highly, but I I can also see why someone would. This one's important. I think this one yes is I, as, I, I agree as important. What else did we get? Do we give something else an eight already? I think King Kong we gave a nine. Uh, uh, nine. I, I, I think I gave King Kong an eight. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, well, it, um, it's a little I mean, I want more people to see both Mighty Joe Young and this. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Mighty Joe Young so far is my highest scoring film of the podcast. Um, yeah. I, spoiler warning to enter the shock of no one because the reason why everyone looks into this genre uh <laughs> next week that, that that's not it's gonna change probably um, gonna change but uh for, for this week it's an eight out of ten for them watch this movie if you're listening to this um if it had just a little bit more money on the technical aspect it would have been a nine out of ten for me <laughs> but uh unfortunately uh, boy howdy what well, king kong 21 years earlier outshines us in the tech, technical aspect so um yeah it it does um i can't decide which i'd rather watch more um <laughs> i mean personally for enjoyment th- this one for me but i as far as like a total greater film king kong is better than this i'd I mean, rather watch my joe young that as well um that's gonna do it for this week's episode a little longer than we thought but like i said yeah i I, I, i'm not surprised we talked about this one a little bit longer than we thought but i i feel like it's all my fault (laughs) i mean yeah i i so for the final score in the film uh we've got an eight out of ten for them and that is going to do it for this week's episode yes be sure to follow us on Twitter at Kaiju versus history. Email us with any comments, concerns, or Kaiju facts at Kaiju versus history at gmail.com and go to Kaiju versus history.com to get ready for the next installment of our March through the annals of monster movie mayhem. What is What could, what could next week be? We've only mentioned it 10 times because of how yeah. close so, together these movies are. Th- yeah, th- this one, this one is, is, it's what we've been leading up to. It's going to be the sh- to the shock of no one. We're in the early fifties. So thank you, Patrick. Mm. And thank you listeners for, for joining us on this journey. And we will catch you next week. We are going to finally do history versus Godzilla.